Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. things a bit differently this morning. Thank you, band. We're going to go right to teaching this morning. So if you grab your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to Exodus chapter 35. We're in Exodus 35 this morning, verses 1 through 29. I want to set the stage with a few things, though. I'm going to be completely upfront with you. This morning, we're going to talk about money. If you want to leave, now's the time. We're also going to do offering at the end. Listen, I feel as slimy as you think I feel about it right now. But here's what I've wrestled with this past week. I wasn't going to do it, and then this morning just felt this conviction over me. That if I'm gonna preach, if I would preach on how do we worship the Lord and how do we sing songs of worship, I would move singing to the end, wouldn't I? Because here's a chance to express that worship. If we're going to uh, speak about prayer, what I would do is I would have a prayer time at the end. So if I really believe that giving is an act of worship, why would I not give you a chance to learn and then to practice it? Why would I not? I would not because I I feel I'm trying to please you instead of please the Lord. That's why I would not do it. So I'm under deep conviction this morning. This is the way to do it. If I'm coaching a team, if I'm coaching somebody and I, um, I don't have them run the drill without me telling them what the drill is to practice. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. So we're gonna talk about money, and it's gonna be awesome, and you're gonna love it. Uh, then we're gonna practice what it means to actually give, what it means to give generously, what it means that God would call us into this. And so let me just say this as well. There's no thermometers in the lobby. We're not trying to raise money for anything. This is an expression of the practice of following Jesus this morning. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm gonna ask you to ask the Spirit to move in your heart today. We've all got ideas from what I just said about what this is going to be about. And there there are boxes you want me to check and I probably won't check them all. There are things you don't want me to say and I might actually say them. What we need this morning is that same name of Jesus to move in our hearts today. God, we come to you as a people prone to wander. We're a people who struggle with a number of things, but at the core of that for many of us is the love of money. And it reveals itself in many ways. Sometimes it's pride and ambition. Sometimes it's the obsession with debt that cripples us. So God, I pray this morning, I beg for freedom today. From the power of the evil one who has his hands in our wallets, that you would deliver us and bring freedom to this place that we would know you above all else. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. On the screen this morning will be a number of scriptures for you just to look at. You can take a picture of it, write them down if you want to, just so you know I'm not making this up. Uh, This has come straight from scripture and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's plenty more we could do. We just don't have the time for it this morning. So it's gonna be a bit different than we normally would study in Exodus. This is week 40, by the way, so we're getting there. We're really close. This is Exodus 35, one through 29. I wanna set this stage though Um, from the book of Matthew. And then I wanna set the stage for us culturally is what I want to do. And then we're gonna study this passage. We're just gonna go through it verse by verse. There are some sections there. And then I wanna move us to a place of application. So let's start with this. In Matthew chapter six, verse 24, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. It's his first sermon. It's, It's epic. And he says this in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, my translation says money. Your translation might say mammon. Anybody translation say mammon in it? Yeah, that's a word we use all the time, I'm sure. So we're familiar with it. The idea of mammon is the idea of wealth, not just currency, but wealth, the pursuit of wealth. That's what mammon is. So this passage, you cannot serve both God and wealth, the pursuit of wealth. You can't do them both. That is not to say you cannot be a Christian and be wealthy. You absolutely can. And I hope you're part of this church and I hope you give regularly. You absolutely can. But that's that's not the issue. 
The issue is the ungodly pursuit of wealth. That is the issue. Now, if you're wealthy because of unrighteous means, that's dirty money and God doesn't want it. So what's happening here is that Jesus is giving this epic sermon and he's making the point that there's God you can serve or there's mammon, the pursuit of wealth, but you can't serve them both. And here's what's interesting, that Jesus puts wealth as the primary competitor for the hearts of the people of God. He chooses money, wealth. He doesn't choose lust. He doesn't choose pride. He doesn't choose politics. He chooses money as the primary competitor for the hearts of the people of God. And here's why. Because mammon, wealth, it sets itself up as a God. And mammon promises to meet all of our needs that only God can truly meet. So truly what Jesus says in Matthew 6 is correct. You have to serve one and you can't serve them both. Now the issue is that we've all been born into a story of a world that's already happening, right? Like when you were born and whatever year you were born, you were born into circumstances. You were born into circumstances in your family. You were born into circumstances uh, physically and emotionally. You were born into circumstances culturally as well. And we can't help what we're born into. But I just, what I want to do is to diagnose for us the story of what we've born into. Over the past three years or so, done a lot of work with a counselor to try to figure out my story. Like where, where are those blind spots in my life and where have they come from? I want to address the disease. Where does it come from? And so what I want to talk about first is our story, primarily as Americans. I want to talk about our story and our relationship with wealth in regards to America. Most of where we are now takes us, takes us back to the Great Depression. How many of you were there for that Great Depression? Okay, uh, the Great Depression. So um, what happened is out of the Great Depression came a mentality of spending and of money, a world, a story we live by, which was hyper-conservative, right? Don't spend on things you want, only spend on things you need, and then make sure you actually need it. And then whenever you buy that thing that you need, make sure those lima beans are gonna last you 45 years in the pantry, make sure. And make sure when you die that your grandkids have to inherit all of the canned goods. That's what the Great Depression taught us, right? So it was, was birthed that idea of hyper-conservative when it comes to uh, economics. Then World War II happens. And as World War II happens and, and the United States gets in, uh, roped into World War II, we go and we send our men off to fight in World War II. And as we do, we need to begin to create, develop more weaponry. But because the men have been drafted and they're overseas fighting, that leaves then the women to work in factories to create weapons. And so they do. Women step up and they work in the factories while their husbands went to war, which brought us this. This is where this comes from. So now you've got women now becoming working class for the first time. And so now what you've got is you've got two income families for the first time. And they're working and this is their way of serving the country. They're literally making weapons of warfare in factories that we've constructed in the United States for this primary purpose. So two income families are on the rise. Our boys are overseas fighting. Women are serving um, by their own job and they're making money. They're making income off of it. As the war ends, what happens is none of the war happens on U.S. soil. And so the superpowers of the time, mostly in Europe, now are decimated, Germany and England, and, and they're decimated. And so what they have to do is try to figure out how to rebuild their infrastructure. And so they've lost time in the race to become an economic and a military superpower in the world. But the United States did not have that issue. And so this picture of London, the United States didn't have this. We didn't have this kind of rubble everywhere to have to rebuild factories and homes and cities. And then this picture of Berlin, we didn't have this kind of thing. So while the rest of Europe, while Europe was trying to rebuild, literally rebuild, America now sat at a prime spot to then arise to become an economic superpower. We just created or, or proclaimed ourselves as a military superpower. Look at what we had done in World War II. And now we've got the chance to overtake these uh, European nations. And so then the boys return back home. And then this happens uh, when they come home. And after that happens, comes the baby boom. And I don't need to tell you how all that happens, but that's what happens. Uh, when they come home. And so now we've got the largest, at that point, living generation in America, the baby boomers. How many baby boomers are here? You can admit it, it's fine. 
Kids will make fun of you, but you're, it's fine. All right, so then that uh, comes to rise. But what's happened is while Europe is trying to struggle to become back, to come back up to what they were, America now hits super speed. And these factories that were constructed to build uh, weapons of warfare, we're not gonna tear them down. Instead, we're going to repurpose them to make consumer goods. So now you've got families with two incomes, with disposable income. You've got factories made to create weapons of warfare that are now creating consumer goods. And because we emerge as a military power, now we've got this path to become an economic superpower. And that created an American view of money, of wealth. It created politicians proclaiming they could get you wealthy if you elected them. This all comes out of this environment. And so to become that kind of economic superpower, we've got to then shift our focus from what was Great Depression mentality into consumeristic mentality. And in post-World War II, there was an economist named Victor Lebo, and he says this in an article, I believe in the New York Times, he said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at an ever increasing rate. In the mid forties, an economist says that, and we in 2022 are living in the aftershock of that, are we not? So then the question for the consumerist, for the marketer, for the business owner is how, how do you shift the heart and vision and paradigm of a great depression culture and generation into the greatest consumeristic generation the world has ever known? How do you make such a, a drastic jump from people who um, store their pantries full of lima beans to people who think lima beans are disgusting and they'd rather go buy a Happy Meal, right? That, that's the question. How do we do it? And so what happened now was the rise of marketing and public relations. And they cultivated what they called the inadequacy approach. The approach of marketers and public relations in the mid 40s and early uh, 50s was to communicate to people that you were inadequate unless you had blank. Because before it was you were inadequate unless you could eat, but now they could eat, now there are all these other things. And so now how do you communicate to people who won't spend money on anything frivolous? They should spend all their money on things that are frivolous. Well, you make the frivolous things feel essential. That's what you do. It's called the inadequacy approach in marketing and advertising. They do it through two ways. First is what's called planned obsolescence. This is where uh, marketers like Madman and Madison Avenue, all that started to build around this time. Planned obsolescence. Obsolescence means when things go obsolete. This is planned. And so then manufacturers started to make things that in their planning would go obsolete after a certain amount of time. It's why light bulbs only lasted two months. It's why things had expiration dates. It's why, um, it's, it's why furniture didn't last as long as it used to. It's why clothes began to uh, get mothballs because of planned obsolescence. You know, we had the technology to make uh, the long lasting light bulb even back in the 50s, but we refused to use it because that would make people buy less light bulbs and meant the consumerism would have declined. It's planned. We're all being discipled by this. Planned obsolescence. You see it today. You see it today in the cars that you buy, don't you? How long has that car lasted you? while your neighbor's driving a car from the 60s. How's that going for you? We see it. But what about for if you can't plan obsolescence, what do you do? Well, the marketers decided they would communicate perceived obsolescence, which is what we call trends. It may not be physically obsolete, but it sure is in society. And so while you once bought those bell bottoms, they're, not, they're gonna be out of fashion for 20 years. And then at some point, your high school is gonna want to wear them. This is perceived obsolescence. Well, it was necessary, it was essential, but now it's kind of faded away. Now I need the next thing. I feel like Apple has cornered the market on perceived obsolescence, have they not? So in this consumeristic world, to move people from consumeristically conservative to extravagant, the marketers got involved. 
Now at this time also came the rise in mass media, which meant commercials and advertising. How many of you are old enough to remember when you only had four, three or four channels on your TV? You remember that? And we are a lot of old people here today. <laughs> how many of you remember how there was no programming on Saturdays until like seven o'clock in the morning? There was literally nothing on TV but static. You remember that? So you had to wait for your cartoons to come on. You couldn't just tell Siri to turn on the cartoons. You had to actually wait for it. Well, this mass media begins to rise, and so sitcoms are happening, dramas are happening on TV in the evenings, and there's strategic product placement, and manufacturers are buying spots in the shows to create what's called perceived obsolescence. Then came this ritual of work, watch, spend, repeat. Work nine to five, be so tired when you come home, you just wanna sit on the couch or in your recliner and watch whatever's on TV. Work, watch, you do that for five days and then Saturday comes and you go to the mall. You remember malls? You remember going to a mall? Then you would go to a mall and what you were told you needed because everything else was obsolete, what you were told you were needed because you're inadequate Monday through Friday, now you go buy on Saturday. And then when you buy that on Saturday, you realize, well, I don't have enough money for food. Then you gotta work extra hours the next week to make up the money to pay the difference. And then this cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. And this is back in the 50s and 60s. And now we've got social media. And now we're too tired to even turn a TV on. We just lay in bed with our phone scrolling mindlessly. And we're being discipled by the world that's saying you are inadequate unless you have this on your back porch, unless you have a back porch, unless you have a house that has room for a back porch, you are inadequate. If you don't have this in your kitchen, if you don't have shiplap, you might as well just call it a day. <laughs> We're being discipled. And it's not just the students, you are too. You've got a Pinterest board? All that is is you feeling inadequate unless you get these things. We're being discipled and trained by the culture in which we live. This is the story that we've been born into. The message of our culture is keep up, stay on trend, but not too long because then it becomes repulsive. Stay on trend just long enough until you can start a new trend. We've got dream houses and dream cars some of us don't want a house, we just wanna drive a van around the West for a while. We dream of professional sports careers because we're told we're inadequate unless our child's playing on the, on the local travel ball team. We've been born into this story, it's become the very air that we are breathing. We don't even recognize it, we're just breathing. But we're breathing the air of consumerism. We've been discipled by this story. And so when I stand up and say, we're gonna talk about money today, that discipleship of your consumerism makes you uneasy about it. Well, the Israelites were also discipled by their stories. They were discipled by their stories of slavery in Egypt and by generation after generation of slaves and no income and working hard and nothing left over. They were discipled by what they perceived as wealth of the Egyptians and the gold and silver and scarlet and violet yarns. They were discipled by this great divide they were discipled to believe if I can just get like the Egyptians, then I'll finally have arrived. They were discipled to become cynical of their parents who couldn't get out of slavery. They were discipled by it. And sure, they fought it in the wilderness, but they still have the story of Egypt in their hearts. And so what has to happen if God's going to make them a royal priesthood, a holy nation? He's not going to be able to do it through behavior modification. He can't tell them what to do. He's not just gonna give them a list of demands. He's not gonna tell them percentages. What has to happen, and God knows, is that God has to get their heart. They don't need a strategy. They need a new heart. And he's doing it. And we just saw in the previous chapter, their heart had turned to idol worship. And Moses comes down from the mountain with the fury and the wrath of God. And they mourn over their sin and Moses goes back up to intercede. Their, their heart is shifting, it's, it's happening. And not because God said, don't be so frivolous with your spending, it's because God said, look how good I am. Look at who I am. And so with that story in mind, let's go to Exodus chapter 35. 
It begins, interestingly, with this. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Are you tired of that part yet? Are you tired of the Sabbath thing yet? But notice what's happening in place. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So now God is creating limits of the work they can do on the Sabbath. It goes so far as to say, you can eat, but don't cook anything. It's like how you feel at about seven o'clock on Thanksgiving day. That's how you feel. I'm hungry, but I'm done cooking. I want nothing. So this is what's happening. But notice, God is about to give them things to do, a to-do list. And it's the thing to do for him. And so the temptation would be, well, if I'm doing it for you, I don't have to rest because it's for you anyway. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Don't neglect this because this is the very character of who I am. I'm not a God who demands you to do things. I'm a God who wants you to rest in me. That's what I want. And I want your doing and your giving and your serving to come out of this restfulness. That's what I want from you. Remember who I am. Sabbath first, contentment first, rest first. And then out of that, we can figure out the rest. And then verse four, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart or willing heart, underline that, highlight it, circle it. This is important for us. Remember, God's not gonna give them a list of demands. God's gonna try to appeal to their heart. And what's happened here, Moses says, listen, here's what I want. God wants any of you who have a generous and a willing heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, purple, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and lamps and the oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen of the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating bronze, its poles, all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the garments for Aaron, the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Now, I don't know how you're wired, but you give me a list like that, I'm doing none of it. Like I'm overwhelmed reading it. Like how much work that's gonna be? You just open Pandora's box. It's like when I get sent to the grocery store and Meredith sends me to the grocery store with a list. I'm like, I, you, you need to expect me to call you the entire time I'm at the store because I don't remember anything you just told me. And so this, he gives them this list. And again, it's, it's a lot. We already read through this a number of times. It's a lot. So then look what they do in verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Now, if you can just stop there and just think through what's just happened. Moses stands before 2.1 million people. He's just met with God. He comes down and he begins to talk about generosity and about giving. And he lays out, here's what God has asked you to give. And then they all leave. I mean, I've preached some bad sermons in my life, but that's never happened before. I mean, they all just leave. They all depart from the presence of Moses. So you got to picture Moses on the hill, on a stone, his head in his hands, like, what have I just done? I thought I was supposed to say this, but I don't know if I was supposed to say this. And then they just leave. And if it's a movie, this is that scene of another failure for Moses. And then you hear in the distance, right, the rustling of metal. The music begins to swell. And then we get this in verse 21. And they came. They came back. Everyone whose heart stirred him, underline that. Everyone whose spirit moved him, underline that. And they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service for the holy garments. And they came. 
both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, underline that, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns with fine twine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. If you're proficient in goat's hair spinning, the Lord can use you today. I like how it follows after the blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. Like they were the good ones. Then you got the goat hair people and they'll bring theirs later. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and the breastpiece, the spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them, underline it, to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded Moses to be brought, to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So what happened? This stiff-necked people became so generous that in Exodus 36, the leaders are saying to Moses, tell them to stop bringing stuff. It's too much. I've never met a pastor who's had that sermon, never. They gave so much. We're talking millions of dollars worth of things. This stiff-necked people, this idol-worshiping people, what happened to them? How did they become so willingly generous? Well, what changed? You think it was Moses' thrilling speech? You think that's what it was? You think it was the laundry list of things that needed to get done and his persuasion and his charisma and personality? You think it was a video he showed of impoverished children in a third world country? Is that, is that what brought them forward with things to give? Maybe it was just the way that he was such a great vision caster. Maybe it was the graphics on the pamphlet they passed out that day and the infographics and the bar charts and all of that. Maybe that's what brought them forward. Maybe it was just the creative marketing of a giving campaign. You see, the last time they heard from Moses, he was going up a mountain to try to intercede for the people because God wanted to put them to death. The last time they heard from Moses, they knew they had earned the wrath of God. And they had expectation of certain death when Moses returned. Remember back in Exodus 33, that when God had declared to them, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. It says in verse four, when they heard this disastrous word, they mourned, they grieved their sin. And no one put on his ornaments, his gold. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What they remember is that they're sinners and they're caught in it and there's no way out. And Moses goes up and he comes back down from the intercession, shining, glowing. Remember, they're afraid. But Moses declares to them all the things that God had said, which is including Exodus 34, six through seven, that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What changed for them? It wasn't behavior modification. It wasn't guilt. It wasn't conniving and manipulation. What changed for them is they saw the character of God and they could not help but to be generous. They knew their sin. They mourned. They grieved it. And then they heard that this God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful to them. What changed for them? How did they become hearts of idol worshipers and stubborn, stiff-necked people into overwhelmingly generous people? They recognized the generosity of God and they responded with repentance and then spilled into their own generosity back to God. 
It wasn't guilt and compulsion. It wasn't behavior modification. Their hearts had moved from the worship of the golden calf of mammon to worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. So the fear in speaking about this in church is that you're gonna think, well, all the church wants is my money. I would say, no, it's worse than that. The church wants your heart. If it was just money, you'd be fine and I'd be fine. But what God wants is not our money. God wants our heart. And for some reason, our hearts are inextricably tied to our money. We're born into it. We've been discipled by it since World War II. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's saying is, you wanna know what you worship? Find where you spend your money. That's what you worship. You wanna know where your heart is and why this conversation bothers you? It's because your heart isn't aligned with the Father. Your heart is aligned with your consumeristic mentality. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Tim Keller says it this way, money flows to that which is its God. Have you ever noticed that? You get to the end of the month and you're like, man, I've spent more than I brought in. I don't remember spending on things. You don't remember it because you really enjoyed it. That's why. Because the money just flowed to that. At the end of this past month, Meredith and I were looking at our budget and we were like, man, how did we get so out of whack this month? I don't understand what happened. And then we begin to look and you know where our money flows to? Chick-fil-A. I mean, flows to Chick-fil-A. Good gracious. Plus you got the app. So now you feel like you're earning things when you're spending too much money there. Well, sure, I spent $1,000, but I got this free cookie, so I feel like that was worth it. <laughs> Goodness. But you don't even recognize it until you're like, how are we gonna keep the lights on in the house? Maybe, maybe less nuggets would help us do that. But it's true, isn't it? Your heart f- f- flows freely to those things that you love. And so now what God is saying is, no, 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 I want your heart to freely flow to me. And I want it, it needs to be shown through your money. So I want you to notice a few things about this passage before we dig in. First is this, they never asked God how much he wanted. Moses doesn't give like measurements. Hey, we need this much, this many talents of gold, this many of silver. He just says, here's what God has asked for. And so they don't have quarrels about, well, what percentage do you want, God? And is it like the Old Testament percentage? You want the New Testament percentage of this? How do we handle this? You want like Egyptian metrics or do you want Israelite metrics on this? They don't, they just, they just go and get it. They don't say, all right, so about the gold, do you want that out of my gross or my net income? Which one do you want from that? Because if you're asking those questions, God doesn't have your heart. If your question is, what's the minimum I can give and God still be happy with me? You've missed the entire point. Is it worthwhile to study tithing in the Old and New Testament? Absolutely, absolutely. And we should know what that is. This passage doesn't speak to that, but I think we should do that. I think you should know. But if you want to know, so you know the bare minimum, you've missed the point altogether, you, better, you might as well just not give anything. They never ask how much. They just go and get it. Secondly, God never guilts them or shames them. And goodness, does he have the right to, doesn't he? I've given you everything. I set you free. He could even say the things in your house that I need from you, I gave to you because I made the Egyptians give it to you. That's mine. And he has every right to say it. And yet he doesn't. What he asks is, I want you to build this place of worship for me. You have what I need. And they run home and they get it. He doesn't demand, he doesn't shame or manipulate. He simply invites them in. You wanna be a part of this? Here's what we need. And the invitation was so overwhelming that they brought way too much stuff. Also, I want you to notice here that Modus doesn't have to strategize or have a campaign or manipulate the people. And this is not Moses' vision. This is not his idea. This is all God's idea. 
He simply shared that he had just spent this time with God. And here's what God is asking of them. If you ever find a leader or a pastor who is promoting his vision and leveraging this book to accomplish his vision, you run. This is not about Moses' visions, what God has given Moses for the glory of God. This is not Moses' words. This is not Moses being a great orator and persuader. This is awful. Like this is not how you do a giving campaign. Hey, here's a list, figure it out. No, but what Moses said was, I don't, I don't know, I'm glowing because I spent time with God and maybe you're drawn to that, so here's what he's asked. But he doesn't have to demand or shame them. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And I know that sounds like a paradox, but there's such a thing as a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there means hilarious. There's such a thing, and God loves that kind of generosity because it's from our heart. Third, I want you to notice that everybody had something to give. Men and women, the leaders had to bring the onyx stones. All of them had something, something to give, something to do. It was gold, silver, wood, yarn, goat skins, goat hair. Like I know it doesn't, comp- I don't, it doesn't compare like when your neighbor's bringing in pallets of gold and you've got, I got this goat hair I found in my sweater. Can that? This, all God's saying is here's what I need. If you got it, let's bring it here. Let's bring it here and build this place of worship. So when I say that everyone has something to give, I know what we go to is, yeah, yeah, but not me. You don't understand. Like I, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent this month. I don't know how I'm going to eat this month. I am so far in debt, I can't even begin to think about giving. I wanna encourage you in this, and I don't want you to feel guilty or ashamed, but I wanna invite you into freedom. Because I think even that perspective is glorifying mammon over the heart of God. 2 Corinthians chapter eight, Paul writes this letter to the church of Corinth. Again, it's his third letter. He's rebuked them in the second one. I mean, this is the second one that we actually know of, that we have. And he says this, I want you to know, brothers of the church in Corinth, a wealthy church, a metropolitan uh, place, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is like Jackson. So it's different than what we're used to in real life. But that, like, it's not, um, oops, I don't mean anything by that. What I mean is, Uh, What I mean is it's off the beaten path. It's not a metropolis. I guess we could be that to you out here in Ola. But what he's saying is, okay, Corinth, you wealthy church, I want you to know what this poor church has done. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I want you to read that again. Pick up on the mathematical equation to generosity. Severe test of affliction, plus abundance of joy, plus extreme poverty has overflowed into a wealth of generosity. What's the prescription for generosity? Affliction, joy, and poverty. And some of you are two thirds of the way there. All you need now is just to be joyful about it. But don't you remember when you first got married? Maybe you were still students in college. Maybe you had just graduated high school or whatever. Maybe, maybe you're trying to figure it all out. You, were, you remember how hard those times were? but do you remember how great those times were? We know this to be true. We know that money doesn't bring you any more joy than poverty does. But out of this affliction, their joy and poverty overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means. As I can testify, Paul says, and beyond their means of their own accord. Didn't guilt them, didn't Sarah McLaughlin them into doing it of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. They begged Paul, can we please help? We don't have two nickels to rub together. We'd love to help them though. How do we help? What do you need us to do? Not, well, here comes the, here comes the money sermon again. It was the people of Macedonia in affliction, joy, and poverty saying, man, we'd love to be part of that. How do we do it? What do you, what do you need from us to do? And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Amen. And then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Paul's saying, and we told Titus, look what Macedonia is doing. Get Corinth on board. 
They've got the resources, get them on board. And he said, but as you excel in everything, Corinth, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace and this generosity also. Don't neglect this. Sure, be biblically sound. Yes, know your doctrine. Yes, worship well. Yes, have great musicians and great leaders. Yes, disciple your kids, but please don't neglect this. Excel in this act of grace also. And from this, from this movement of the early church, the world was transformed. And Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in its way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave no one their money and practically everyone their body. But the Christians came along and gave practically no one their body and gave practically everyone their money. I heard one pastor say they couldn't keep their wallet in their pants. That's what he says about this. Keller calls it um, promiscuous generosity. That the church was marked by this. They were so set apart by their generosity. It rises so much that now the Caesar has taken note of it. He takes note of this, what he calls the way, the way of Jesus. And how their things are shifting and changing. The things they're teaching are causing people to spend less money on frivolous things. The things that they're teaching are causing sorcerers and those who practice witchcraft to be um, really knocked out of business. And he, he's furious by it because that was his income as well. And so he gets a spy named Aristides and he tells Aristides to go into the church Figure out these people in the way. I want you to tell me what they're doing so we can do away with it. And Aristides goes in and he spends some time in there and he writes what's called the apology back to Caesar. And in this apology, he says, I don't know what you expected me to find, but this is amazing. And he gets to the end of the letter and he says, I don't know why anyone wouldn't follow this Jesus. So I'm going to. And I'd love for you to come with me, Caesar. And in this apology, Aristides says this, these Christians, they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that are poor and needy, if they have, uh, if they have no spare food, these people fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people. And there is something divine in the midst of them. Oh, that that would be said of us. That the government would send a spy into our church. And he'd come back and say, I don't know, man, but it's awesome. Like those people actually love each other. And they're so generous and they never boast about it. It's like a... It's like a new breed of human in there. I don't know what's happening, but I think I'm gonna go. Leslie Newbegin, a theologian, tells us that we should live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. So is it hard to combat the culture of consumerism? You bet it is. But it's our calling Think about these Israelites and what they had acquired. They had never had anything like this before. They had never had gold and silver and bronze, and purple and red and blue yarn and fabric. They'd never had linen like this. And so a few months into their freedom, God says, hey, I, I would like you to use that for worship. Now the cynic says, no, hold on. Like, I'll, I'll give it to the poor, but you want me to build you a pretty building? No, I'm not gonna do that. But you see, their hearts were moved to trust the character of God. They had every right to be cynical, but instead they trusted the character of God. We have become cynical in how God asks us to spend our money. So I wanna leave you with this. Generosity is not God's way of raising money. It is his way of raising his kids. It's his way of raising us to be more like him. That's what he's doing. He doesn't need our money. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. He literally speaks things into existence. We 
trying to do is just to shape our hearts. We're so imprisoned by the pursuit of mammon that we see God's asking of us as something inappropriate. So as is our fashion, we went to Chick-fil-A yesterday because we haven't learned our lesson. We're at Chick-fil-A, the five of us and Meredith's parents and um, Landry got a kid's meal. And so if you get a kid's meal at Chick-fil-A, you can turn the book in and get an ice cream instead, which I feel like is just not really, what kid's gonna keep the book? But anyway, so maybe your kids do and that's why they're better than mine. But Landry wants the ice cream and because Meredith is tiny and doesn't take much to fill her up, she got a kid's meal, which means she gets the book, which means she gets ice cream. And so she gets ice cream and we teach our kids um, tithing in this way that mama always, always gets the curl on top of your ice cream. Mama always gets it. She gets, the, she gets the first and the best and then the rest you can spend on. That's what we teach about God. And so that's how she, she does. Um, but one of, one of our boys, I won't say his name, but he's the oldest one, decides that <laughs> he also wants ice cream and mama, like God is generous, she just, she just wants the curl. And then sometimes she wants a little more than the curl, so she gets it, right? It's hers. She earned it by getting the kid's meal. He could have got the kid's meal, but she got it. And so she's eating it. And then um, he grows frustrated that she is eating what he calls his ice cream. And mama, like God, has to remind us, no, 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 this was mine. I'm giving this to you. It's a way that for us, we're trying to raise our kids to understand stewardship. We're not great at it. Like, this is a struggle, for, to be honest. This is a struggle for me. I've grown a lot in this endeavor. But it's God's way of raising his kids. But I want us to be sure to understand this. That generosity is always tied to repentance. Because repentance is always tied to conviction. And conviction is always tied back to the character of God. So this morning, I'm not asking you to give more. What I'm asking you to do is to gaze upon the character of God. How good and generous he is, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I want you, like the Israelites, to recognize you deserve death. You deserve hell. And God, in his grace and generosity, has rescued you from it. And in his overwhelming grace, has entrusted things to you and to me. And I feel like there's got to be a better way than to trust us with stuff. Because I know us. But he has. It's always connected to the character of God. We see it in 2 Corinthians because 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, hey, I see you got my letter and you've repented. I'm proud of you. Now let's be generous. Acts chapter four, uh, Paul, Peter and John are in prison and they get set free and they begin to proclaim the gospel and the Christians are like, this is amazing. And they pray for more boldness because they saw the rescue of Peter and John. They saw the power of God and then they begin to meet everyone's need inside of their church. It's always connected. And I believe this is why, it's worship. Kent Hughes, the theologian says, every time I give, I declare that money doesn't control me. You wrestle with being generous, I would argue it's because the mammon is controlling you. When I struggle with giving, it's because the mammon has controlled me. So on the screen are ways for you to give this morning as an act of worship. As Mallory makes her way up and begins to play, I'm just gonna ask you to consider a few things. First is this, this is not a campaign. This is worship. It's a declaration that mammon doesn't control us. It's a declaration that God is as good as he says that he is. It's a declaration that the consumeristic world that we live in is not our kingdom. We don't serve the God of Disney and the God of Netflix. We don't serve the God of Amazon. We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a declaration this morning. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and wrestle with two questions before you give. First is this, what am I giving? If you were to be honest, what is it that I'm giving? What am I being generous with or not giving? So for some of us, this is the step we have to take forward is into generosity, into giving. And again, this is not out of compulsion or guilt or shame. This is an invitation to freedom. I think the question most of us have to wrestle with because we are a generous church. You are a generous people. 
think we have to wrestle with is why are you giving? Are you giving because 20 years ago a pastor told you you needed to? Are you giving because it, and for that brief moment, absolves some guilt you have? Are you giving out of compulsion? Are you giving because you heard a pastor say, if you give $100, God will give you $1,000. You can really use $1,000. Or are you giving because your heart has been so moved by the character of God? Your response is, why would I not give? If you've come prepared to give today with a cheerful heart, I would invite you into giving today. And if you're not there yet, God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you can be set free from the fear and worry and anxiety of the grip of consumeristic mammon. If you would, would you pray this generosity prayer with me as we conclude this morning? Here's how we're gonna end. We're just gonna pray this prayer. If the elders have something after this, but we're gonna pray this prayer together. If you would, would you stand? And let's pray this together. As a generous people, let's pray. Loving God, I come to you in thanksgiving, knowing that all I am and all I have is a gift from you. I offer my gifts of time, breath, ability, possessions, and mind to you as a true act of faith, to reflect love for you and my neighbor. Help me to reach out to others as you, my God, have reached out to me. We ask this through your son, Jesus, who reigns forever and ever, amen.